Due to the graphic nature of this Kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In June 2007, the leaders of Mexico's two biggest drug trafficking organizations met in the same room face to face. It was intended to be a peace summit between the Federation, an alliance of cartels across the country, and the Zetas, a paramilitary group that had allied with the Gulf Cartel. But once they were all gathered, there was still one face missing, the Sinaloa Cartel's leader, Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. To the Zetas, this suggested the summit might actually be a setup. For the Federation, it felt like another ploy by their missing partner to ensure he had the upper hand, or worse, to have his assassins wipe them all out in one fell swoop. As the clock struck noon, the tension was almost palpable. Suddenly, the door swung open and in walked El Chapo. The first thing he did was walk over to the ruthless leader of the Zetas and former Mexican Special Forces soldier, Heriberto Lazcano. As the whole room held its breath, El Chapo sized up his competitor. One wrong move, and the room could quickly become a bloodbath. And then, with his signature sense of humor, El Chapo teased Lazcano with a crass joke. And the whole room burst into laughter. El Chapo had once again demonstrated his dominance, but the ambitious Lazcano didn't like being pushed around. He laughed along now, but he swore to himself that one day he'd get back at the aging boss. Welcome to Kingpins, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. And I'm Kate Leonard. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them, and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. This is our final episode about Joaquin Guzman Luera, the infamous Mexican drug boss known as El Chapo. Last week, we saw El Chapo grow his business while in prison before escaping and becoming the most powerful and dangerous narco in the country. This week, We'll find out how El Chapo's success in taking his syndicate global led him to start to believe his own hype, forgetting that he wasn't actually invincible. We'll dive into El Chapo's fight to maintain control right after this. By 2007, 50-year-old Joaquin El Chapo Guzman Loera was the head of the Sinaloa cartel. At his side was his mentor, Ismael Zambada Garcia, known as El Mayo. Since their betrayal of Rodolfo Carrillo Fuentes, the former leader of the Juarez cartel, the two had slowly been taking over the countrywide drug trafficking alliance known as the Federation. Only the paramilitary Zetas, now officially merged with the Gulf cartel, could match them. 
For years, the two organizations had been enmeshed in a violent and expensive war, one that was gaining them little territory despite costing millions. Something had to change. Early in 2007, Zambada and some of the older drug lords convinced El Chapo and Heriberto Lascano, the leader of the Zetas, that a truce could benefit both sides. The war was pulling them all away from their businesses, and their Colombian suppliers were starting to get annoyed by it. That June, the leaders from both syndicates met for a talk. El Chapo showed up late, aggravating the Zetas. But his famous charm put them at ease. They may not have trusted him, but everyone who met the Sinaloa chief couldn't help but like him. Before long, they'd managed to work out a deal to end the violence, with both sides sticking to the territory they already held. No one knew how long the truce would last, but at the very least, it would benefit everyone to be able to focus on trafficking rather than war for a while. El Chapo was likely willing to consider the deal because he'd recently started focusing on international opportunities, like methamphetamine. He and the Sinaloa cartel imported from chemical suppliers in Asia and distributed to South America, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. At the same time, he'd also been building a stronger presence in the US and Canada. Trafficking through Mexico was only half the business. The more of the process he owned, the more money he'd make. El Chapo was so focused on the future that he may have missed what was happening right before his eyes. During the June summit, one of his closest lieutenants and cousin by marriage, Arturo Beltran Leyva, had gotten along famously with Heriberto Lozcano, the leader of the Zetas. And the blossoming friendship between one of El Chapo's top associates and one of his biggest rivals would spell trouble for the boss. The Beltran Leva brothers had long supported El Chapo's ambitions, but riding his coattails had only shown them how much more could be done on their own. Around 2007, they were starting to feel restricted by their lower place in the Federation's hierarchy and wanted to branch out. Though they didn't yet dare challenge El Chapo directly, the brothers quietly started to build their own cartel. When Arturo befriended Lozcano, he saw an opportunity. If he could make a deal with the Zetas, he and his brothers could traffic through the Gulf Cartel's lucrative territory. And by allying with the Zetas and Gulf Cartel, the Beltran Levas could become major power players. By late 2007, Arturo and Lozcano had quietly worked out an arrangement. El Chapo would likely find out soon, but they figured everything would be okay as long as they didn't flaunt it or cause trouble. Except Arturo's brother, Alfredo, didn't get the memo. <laughs> Alfredo Beltran Leva had gotten overly confident in his growing power. It wasn't long before he started flaunting his status as a high-ranking member of the Federation out in public. He was regularly seen at bars and throwing opulent parties in Culiacan and he constantly reminded everyone that he was above the law. For El Chapo, who, let it be remembered, was still a fugitive, having a cousin running around Mexico waving wads of drug money was not ideal. 
Alfredo's behavior would only enlarge the huge target that was already on his back. By the end of 2007, the Beltran Levas weren't just cocky among outsiders, they'd also been less deferential and supportive to El Chapo. All it took was asking a few trusted partners to learn the truth. When El Chapo discovered their partnership with the Zetas, he was livid at the betrayal. He felt his cousins owed him everything. They'd have to be brought back in line. At 2 a.m. on January 21, 2008, Alfredo was pulled over and arrested by federal officers as he was leaving a girlfriend's house. At first, he didn't take the traffic stops seriously. After all, he and his brothers were personally responsible for handling the cartel's police payoffs. But when they took him into custody and confiscated his weapons, he realized that someone else was pulling the strings, someone more powerful than him. That same night, federal agents raided three houses belonging to Arturo. As soon as he realized what had happened, he knew El Chapo was behind it. Arturo was simultaneously livid and scared. He and El Chapo were brothers in all but blood. Not only had they come up through the industry together, but Arturo had stayed by his cousin's side while he was in prison. Arturo was furious that El Chapo would throw all that history away. But he also knew that if his cousin hung him out to dry, he'd have very few allies left. There was only one option. If Arturo wanted to win this fight, he and his brothers were going to have to fully align themselves with the Zetas. That meant leaving the Federation and declaring war on El Chapo. Coming up, the Beltran Levas and the Zetas go after the things that matter most to El Chapo. Now, back to the story. By early 2008, 50-year-old Joaquin El Chapo Guzman Loera was feeling pretty good. He may have still been a fugitive from the law, but he was expanding his business internationally. He'd successfully nipped a potential problem in the bud by sending the police after his cousins. And he was sure they'd come crawling back and apologize, anxious to make things right. That isn't what happened. In fact, when his partners in the Federation saw the way he'd hung his own cousins out to dry, they all turned against him. They finally realized that El Chapo was always going to put his own interests over everyone else's. All the bosses needed was an excuse to get out from under his thumb. On May 8th, 2008, they got that excuse. That evening, Edgar Guzman Lopez, El Chapo's 22-year-old son, was leaving a mall in Culiacan with some friends. Edgar was not involved in his father's drug trafficking. He was a business student at a local university. As Edgar and his friends walked to their cars, three trucks suddenly appeared in the parking lot. More than a dozen men jumped out and let loose with machine guns. One even fired a bazooka. Edgar and his friends didn't stand a chance. Their attackers fired more than 500 bullets, decimating a number of cars in the parking lot in the process. The young men were long dead by the time the police arrived. El Chapo was devastated. 
his family had always been most important to him, alongside his business, of course, and he had hoped that Edgar might have a better life than he'd had. He swore revenge on whoever had killed his son. It didn't take long to figure out that the Beltran Levas and the Zetas were behind Edgar's murder. To El Chapo, this was a declaration of war. Within days of Edgar's murder, the Federation had dissolved, with the rest of the drug lords taking sides in the fight that was about to come. Anyone who'd ever had reason not to trust El Chapo sided with the Beltran Levas, which amounted to just about everyone. El Chapo and Zambada were left to fight on their own. And it would be a fight to the death. Over the next three months, the city of Culiacan devolved into violence, with nearly 400 people dying in the nascent drug war. And while it may have been personal for El Chapo and the Beltran Levas, the other narcos saw it as a chance to gain territory for themselves. The Zetas started invading cities and towns outside of their jurisdiction, beheading anyone loyal to rival cartels. Other groups started killing anyone suspected of snitching. In regions with strong narco presence, just being in the wrong place at the wrong time was cause enough for murder. Everyone in Mexico realized that this war was different. Gone were the days when the violence was mostly internal. El Chapo's and the Zetas' scorched earth approach had become the norm. The Mexican government realized that things had gotten out of control. Innocent civilians were getting murdered in the streets alongside narcos, while others were turning to the cartels for protection. The government was going to have to take extreme measures to get a handle on things. The Mexican military started to step up its operations against the cartels, but this time they did so with the help of the DEA. The government had understandably been loath to let the US agency run loose, but now they had to do whatever it took to stop the bloodshed. Of course, adding the DEA to the mix only increased the death toll. The cartels now targeted law enforcement as much as they targeted each other. The Zetas and the Beltran Levas made a point of going after the Federales, killing more than 500 of them in 2008 alone. Fending off both his rivals and law enforcement, El Chapo hid in the Sinaloa Mountains, where he'd be hard to find and where the locals would protect him. He began limiting his circle of trusted associates, and whenever he suspected someone might have betrayed him, he simply shot them with or without proof. Over the next few years, Mexico was a veritable war zone. A number of El Chapo's close allies and friends met a bloody end, and the DEA ramped up its attacks on El Chapo's operation on both sides of the border. In the United States, the DEA arrested hundreds of cartel members, and down south, they trained Mexican Marines to begin busting El Chapo's meth labs, disrupting his supply lines in and out of Mexico. But despite the mounting death toll and blows to his business, El Chapo refused to be intimidated. He'd always been able to find his way out of a jam. This time wouldn't be any different. Instead of buckling down amid the domestic chaos, 
El Chapo built and strengthened ties with international crime syndicates and sent his men to establish distribution cells around Africa and Europe. At the same time, he scaled up his money laundering operations through major banks and corporations. While Mexico burned around him, El Chapo flourished, becoming richer and more powerful. As long as he stayed in hiding, moving regularly between his ranches in the mountains, he was almost untouchable. But five years into the bloody and costly drug war, the 56-year-old narco was getting tired of life on the run. He wasn't able to go dancing or take his wife to fancy restaurants. He had all the money in the world at his disposal, but he couldn't enjoy it. He was essentially the CEO of a powerful international business. He wanted to be able to enjoy the fruits of his labor. So by 2013, El Chapo started to tell himself that perhaps he was being overly cautious. He no longer worried about his rivals, who wouldn't dare come to Sinaloa. As for the military, he knew if he maintained his high standards of security, he should be able to leave his mountain hideouts without crossing them. As a man used to getting what he wanted, he convinced himself that he could have his cake and eat it too. He wanted to believe that he was invincible, and all the evidence suggested he was right. And so he started to venture out of the mountains. At first, he just went into Culiacan, where he all but owned the local government. When that went well, he started going to the coastal resort city of Mazatlan and other scenic spots in Sinaloa. He stayed at associates' houses or checked into hotels with his bodyguards under an assumed name. With each successful trip, he felt increasingly confident. Except his complacency was exactly what the military was counting on. They'd been tracking him every time he left the mountains, gathering intel on each trip. Soon, they'd built a picture of the houses he stayed at, the friends he saw, and the towns he frequented. And by the beginning of 2014, a Mexican Marine Special Forces unit known as CEMAR was closing in on El Chapo. Coming up, El Chapo discovers he's not invincible. Now, back to the story. By early 2014, 57-year-old Joaquin El Chapo Guzman Loera had been at war for more than a decade with both rival narcos and the military. But after 13 years on the run, he was getting tired of living in hiding. Both overconfident and restless, he decided it was time to start coming down from the mountains. Unbeknownst to him, the Mexican Marines had been covertly tracing all of El Chapo's movements. They created an elite team known as Seymar to take him down. And it was only a matter of time before El Chapo was once again behind bars. On February 16, 2014, the powerful narco headed into Culiacan, Sinaloa, where he stayed at the house of an ex-wife. He had just gone to sleep that night when a loud noise awakened him. A battering ram was trying to break down the front door. 
He jumped up, waking his bodyguard and his personal chef, and ran for one of the ground floor bathrooms. In the bathroom, he flipped a switch near the mirror and activated an electrical outlet by the sink. Suddenly, a hydraulic lift raised the bathtub out of its frame. Underneath was a steep set of stairs leading down into a tunnel. The three hurried down and ran until they reached a door that led to the city's underground sewer system. From there, El Chapo led the way to another safe house where they jumped into a car and headed for the coast. The Samar operatives had lost him, but they were sure they could find him. They occupied all of El Chapo's safe houses in Culiacan, set up checkpoints on the highway throughout Sinaloa, and arrested as many of his inner circle as they could. Five days later, early in the morning of February 21st, El Chapo was asleep in an oceanfront condo in the resort town of Mazatlan. He was there with his wife, Emma, their twin toddlers, the chef, and the nanny. And the bodyguard he'd escaped Khan with guarded the door. Suddenly, the front door shattered and Marines flooded into the condo. El Chapo instinctively grabbed his gun and ran into the bathroom. But there was no escape. The Marines had the children and employees in custody. Emma was screaming, begging the soldiers not to kill her husband. El Chapo knew he was cornered. And if he tried to fight back, both he and Emma could end up dead. He didn't want that ending for himself or for their daughters. Within three minutes after Seymour burst through the door, the most infamous fugitive in Mexico had surrendered. For the second time in his life, El Chapo was in handcuffs. Compared to 1993, El Chapo's 2014 indictment and trial were a much bigger deal. The Mexican government wanted him to finish his original sentence from the 1990s in addition to serving time for the new charges. The U.S. government, meanwhile, wanted him extradited as both federal and state-level prosecutors had major indictments against him. Mexico felt the drug lord needed to face the music in the country he decimated and worried that the Americans would cut a deal in order to get information on corruption within the Mexican government. At the same time, the U.S., along with much of the public, didn't have faith in the Mexican prison system to be able to keep him locked up. Whether through corruption or escape artistry, most people figured El Chapo would get out somehow. Hoping to prove the Americans wrong, Mexican officials locked the narco up in the maximum security prison known as Altiplano, west of Mexico City. With the surrounding airspace and airwaves restricted, as well as visitation restrictions, there was nowhere safer they could put him. But El Chapo wasn't daunted. If anything, he relished the challenge. He was annoyed to have been caught, but the Sinaloa cartel was still humming along just fine under Ismael Zambada Garcia. He could reclaim his place as soon as he found his way out of prison. So, with his wife Emma as messenger, El Chapo made contact with the architect who built all of his trafficking tunnels. It was time for another escape. On the evening of July 11, 2015, after nearly a year and a half at Altiplano, 
the 58-year-old narco took his medication and returned to his cell for the evening. But he didn't go to bed. Around 8.30 p.m., he walked across the room and, according to the security camera in his cell, disappeared behind the waist-high wall that divided his shower from the rest of the room. What the camera couldn't see was that there was a hole in the floor of the shower. A 32-foot ladder descended to a tunnel equipped with a ventilation system and a motorcycle on rails. El Chapo hopped on and raced nearly a mile to the other end of the tunnel. He climbed out into a new cinderblock farmhouse where his associates were waiting to get him back to Sinaloa as quickly as possible. Back at the prison, the alarm was raised almost immediately. As soon as law enforcement found the tunnel, they realized not only that he was long gone, but that he'd been planning this escape from the moment he'd been locked up. The construction of the tunnel and farmhouse likely couldn't have happened without the knowledge of prison officials. The noise and the tons of dirt being moved would have been obvious to the staff. More likely than not, the narco's deep pockets helped him escape as much as his construction team. In the meantime, El Chapo raced back to the mountains of Sinaloa, the only place he knew he'd be safe. But Sinaloa had changed while he'd been in prison, and not in his favor. He was still the most famous narco in Mexico, but he was much more of a figurehead now than he used to be. And though the Beltran Levas and the Zetas were still threats, there were also newer cartels led by ambitious and hungry young men who were anxious to unseat the king. Though his partner Zambada had held much of the Sinaloa cartel's territory, their rivals had been making incursions while El Chapo was gone. And they weren't about to stop now that he was back. Knowing that El Chapo was in the area, the other cartels sent groups of heavily armed men to shoot up towns and ranches in the Sinaloan Sierra. They wanted to prove that he didn't have the power he used to have and to warn the locals that he couldn't protect them anymore. It was working. The people of Sinaloa, who'd loved and protected El Chapo, were tired of the bloodshed. They just wanted the violence to end. Perhaps that's why he got in touch with Mexican movie star Kate Del Castillo, wanting to make a movie about his life. The idea had been floated while he was in prison, but had fizzled after his escape. But in September 2015, Del Castillo had a different proposal. Her friend, Hollywood actor Sean Penn, was interested in profiling the drug lord for Rolling Stone magazine. El Chapo didn't have to think twice. It was possible that the DEA and the Mexican government might be watching the two actors' movements, but the narco decided the risk was worth it. Getting his story out and cementing his legacy was all that mattered to him. One month later, the two actors met El Chapo at one of his ranches in Sinaloa. After a friendly chat over tequila, he decided he could trust them, and he asked them to come back in eight days for the official interview. In the meantime, he and his men had to move, just in case the government was tracking them. As it turned out, the government was on his tail. 
Working with the DEA, the Mexican Marines had been tracking his men's communications and were able to pinpoint his location, possibly as a result of the messages with Del Castillo. They ambushed El Chapo a few days later at one of his ranches. The narco made yet another miraculous escape. But that didn't stop the Marines from hounding him, forcing him back on the run. They arrested his close associates and supposedly tortured them for information. Despite all his money and power, the noose was tightening around Sinaloa's renowned escape artist. By January 2016, the military presence in the mountains forced El Chapo to the coastal city of Los Mochis. He could stay at a friend's house with his bodyguards. With some quick modifications to install escape tunnels, it became a perfect safe house. In the early hours of January 8, 2016, El Chapo was awakened for the third time by the front door being knocked down. But this time, he was ready for the Marines. He had nine heavily armed bodyguards in the house who returned fire. While they held off the soldiers, El Chapo and a bodyguard escaped down a hidden stairwell in one of the bedroom closets. Knowing the soldiers would be looking for escape hatches, he'd even had a decoy installed in the front of the house, hoping it might distract them while he and his lieutenant raced through the muddy sewers. The only problem was that they were unfamiliar with Los Mochis, and they'd had to put things together so quickly that he didn't have any other safe houses in the city to go to. After they'd been running for a while, unsure where they were, El Chapo decided it was best to get above ground. They'd already contacted a number of his men to come pick them up. They just needed to get out of the city to a meetup point. Choosing an exit at random, the 58-year-old drug kingpin pushed open a manhole cover and climbed out into traffic. Wearing only their pajamas, now dirty from the sewers, he and his bodyguard held up a car at a traffic light and forced two women and a baby out of it at gunpoint. And then they raced towards the city limit. But by now, the entire region was on high alert, and the Federales had established checkpoints on all roads out of town. With a description of the car he'd hijacked, it didn't take long for officers to spot El Chapo. They arrested the two men and took them to a local motel to wait for the Marines to arrive. El Chapo tried to make a deal to get them to let him go, but his days of paying off the police were over. It was an unceremonious end for one of Mexico's most famous and ruthless drug lords. For the next year, the Mexican and U.S. governments negotiated over who would get to prosecute the drug lord this time. In light of the Mexican penal system's obvious corruption, the U.S. ultimately won out. In January 2017, he was extradited to the United States. Two years later, after a high-profile trial in Brooklyn, New York, El Chapo was sentenced to life in the United States' most secure prison. He remains there to this day. For years, it seemed like El Chapo might be the one crime boss that neither the law nor his rivals could contain. It was a myth that he certainly believed, and one that helped him build both his reputation and empire. But by the time it was proven wrong, 
it was clear that he wasn't quite the omnipotent magician everyone believed him to be. As much as El Chapo brought money to impoverished Sinaloa, he was also responsible for widespread violence and destruction across Mexico and Latin America. The drug wars he started have resulted in the deaths of more than 150,000 Mexicans since 2007. In the early 2010s, at the height of the violence, Mexico was a deadlier place to live than the war zones in Iraq and Afghanistan. Since El Chapo's arrest, the tone he set has continued, and the cartels still murder thousands of Mexicans and Latin American migrants annually. This continued violence has demonstrated how El Chapo was never the all-powerful magnate of legend. He was one man of many, born out of a decades-old system, and taking him out of the industry has only opened up more space for others to rise. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find more episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Kingpins for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Kingpins was written by Kate Thorman with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Kate Leonard and Alastair Merton.